Good morning. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team here. It is good to be with you this morning. I want to say welcome. If you're new or visiting, uh, please connect with us following the gathering. Uh, there are a few sayings that have been said by so many different people that it's difficult to sort of pinpoint who said that thing first. And so because I heard this saying last from pastor and theologian Andrew Wilson, uh, he gets the credit this morning, okay? Andrew Wilson said this. Maybe you've heard it. What you win people with is what you win them to. Have you heard that before? What you win people with is what you win them to. And if you don't understand, don't worry, I'll spend the entire rest of the sermon explaining. One of the best ways we've seen this truth, the truth of this quote played out in the church, is being in what has been called the attractional or seeker church movement. The attractional or seeker church movement. And the attractional church movement, if you're unfamiliar with it, that's great, it, it goes like this. The problem for the attractional church that needs to be solved is that the church is boring. This is boring. Singing and standing and reading the Bible, it's, it's kind of boring, right? Smells and bells and sometimes chanting, it's boring. So the attractional church says, okay, you know what? We're going to do whatever it takes to get as many people in the church as we can so that they can hear the gospel. One of my favorite events, and this is real. You can Google this, not now, but later. One of my favorite events that's become a hallmark of the attractional church movement is the helicopter Easter egg drop. Have you heard about this? It is what it sounds like. <laughs> It's a helicopter Easter egg drop. And so people will come from around the neighborhood. They'll do a big sort of pamphlet, you know, spam of the neighborhood. People will come from everywhere and they'll come and the church will rent a helicopter and they'll throw little bowls of death down at children while they scramble around to, to collect them. And the hope is that, you know, that they'll come and they'll see this great spectacle and people will be sort of, you know, welcomed into the church. And, and to be fair... Whether it's helicopter Easter egg drops or live animals in the stable on Christmas Eve or virtual reality headsets for the youth. To be fair, the hope for the attractional church movement has always been to use these things to get people into the church so that these people can hear the gospel. So that they can respond to the gospel and believe in Jesus. But here's what happened. Here's what happened. Having been won to the church through these means, the people were hungry for these things to continue. And slowly but surely, the good news of Jesus is pushed further and further back in the gathering until it disappears altogether. It's not really an appetite for it. After all, when people are one to the church without the good news of Jesus, what use do they have for the good news of Jesus? See, today the attractional church movement is really less of a movement and more like something we find scatterings of in many churches across primarily North America. And why do I say all of this? I don't say all this to slag the attractional or seeker church. No, I say this because the attractional temptation, this lure to dress up the gospel of Jesus, to make it more appealing, seeker-sensitive, it's not a new one. 
As we'll see this morning, this is very much what some in the Corinthian church were asking for. That the gospel is a bit more sexy. What's more, while we might clearly see how misdirected helicopter Easter egg drops are, we might not have eyes to see how you and I obscure the gospel of Jesus in the same way all the time. How we fall prey to the attractional temptation to dress the gospel up a little bit. Why does this matter? It matters because if Andrew Wilson, or whoever said it first, is correct, that eventually we'll put so much makeup and lipstick and different clothes on the gospel that we will lose it entirely. And when the gospel goes, the good news goes, as we'll see in this text this morning, so does the Spirit and so does any power for real, real change in people's lives. The question remains this morning, it's the question we're going to be asking. If the attractional temptation misses it, how should you and I, as proclaimers of the gospel, do it? How should we proclaim I want to suggest Paul gives us three things this morning. He talks about the manner of our proclamation, the content of our proclamation, and the result of our proclamation. So the manner, the content, and the result of our proclamation. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. If you don't have a Bible, we have some at the back for you. They're our gift to you. Take it, keep it, it's yours. But open your Bibles, either on your phone or or in physical, right before you. And let's read verses 1 to 3 together. I want us to look at the manner in which Paul brought the gospel when he first came to this church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 3 reads like this. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. For for the past two weeks, and and again today, we've really been circling around the same idea. The same idea again and again and again. And the idea is this. It's that the cross of Jesus changes everything. We saw a couple weeks ago how the cross of Jesus changes how we are to think of power in this world, what is effective in this world. And last week, he showed us how the cross of Jesus calls an unlikely people, a weak, fumbling, stumbling kind of people. That's who you are, church. But now Paul this week, having looked at the big meta picture, having said, church, this is you, he now turns inward and says, this is me. This is my life. This is my story. This is who I was. And he has the church, like a good pastor, he has them think back to his early days in Corinth. If you go to Acts 18, I'd encourage you, if you have your Bible, go to Acts 18. If you go to Acts 18 in your Bible, you find Luke record there Paul's early days of his time in Corinth. And we've looked at this a couple times already, but it's worth seeing again. Luke tells us that when Paul arrived in Corinth, that he connects with other Jews, Priscilla and Aquila, these other tent makers, and begins plying his trade, working humbly. 
Paul's arrival is not met with fanfare. There's no like Twitter announcements or big celebration or parade. Paul shows up in Corinth and begins making tents. Sewing tents. However tents are made, I don't even know. But again, he starts doing that. Luke tells us next that Paul does eventually go and teach in the synagogue. And when he does go in the synagogue, again, no fanfare, no celebration, but Luke tells us that Paul is opposed and reviled. And he's kicked out of the synagogue. So he goes to the Gentiles. And he's not ministering among the Gentiles for long before, again, he faces opposition. Paul is dragged before a Roman tribunal. And while Paul is is vindicated, he's not charged for the crimes he's accused of, he has no opportunity there to preach the gospel. He's not given a platform to speak. He's not lifted as this great and mighty orator. Presumably, think about this, Paul's time in Corinth, all year and a half, two years of it, consists of him plying his trade, meeting regularly to teach and encourage the church in humble settings, all while under the threat of violence and persecution. I kind of hesitate to say this, but if Paul was a a missionary today, we might hesitate to support him. Right? What is he doing? He's working, teaching in these small house churches. No one likes him. The crowds are not being won over. Paul, what are you doing? It's not a glamorous life. See, when Paul says... Look back at your Bibles with me. That I decided to know, know, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's not just referring to the content of his message, which we'll see in a bit, but he's talking as well about his manner of life or his lifestyle, which accompanied his message. A manner he elaborates on in verse 3. Did you catch that? And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Paul faced everywhere he went, lots of difficulty in his ministry, everywhere he went. But but perhaps he faced opposition most acutely while in Corinth. In fact, Paul's opposition in Corinth was so severe that if you read in Acts 18, you'll learn that God had to come to Paul in a vision to encourage him to not be afraid. That's how intense the persecution was. Look at Acts 18. Paul's in Corinth. He's fearful. And in verse 9 we read, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, Paul. Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. Paul is weak, he is fearful, and he is trembling. And no attributes could be further from what the Corinthians preferred in their orders, in their rhetoricians. Perhaps unique to Corinth in the ancient world was their desire not only for a polished message, but for a polished messenger. Now, it's worth noting that the whole ancient world wasn't like this. This is a unique Corinthian problem. Paul says in Galatians 4 that he brought the gospel to the church in Galatia in illness. And in Galatians 4.14, Paul writes there, 
that though he was in illness, though he was weak, though he was fearful, though he was sick, the Galatian church did not meet him with scorn or contempt. They were fine with his weakness, fine with his illness, but not so in Corinth. Galatia was not Corinth, and Corinth was not Galatia. In Corinth, not only did the message have to be slick and powerful and strong, but the presenter themselves needed to back up their beautiful message with a slick and strong and beautiful life, which is a problem if your name is Paul. Because Paul, before he ever preached the cross, his life already looked not like the feed of an Instagram influencer, but like the cross. Think about this with me, and you can close your eyes and envision this with me. With a limp, Paul walks into Corinth. With illness, Paul is often overcome. With sticks and stones, Paul is often greeted. With laughter and mocking, shouts of derision, his words are often met. And yet Paul persists. He gives up his reputation, his wealth, everything, so that the Corinthians might know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul knew that following a crucified Savior would not only shape his message, but also the messenger. Here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. God so desires that we would see Jesus Christ and him crucified that he wants nothing to get in the way. Not even our tendencies to become enthralled and obsessed with the messenger rather than the message. God so wants us to see Jesus and him crucified that he doesn't want an obnoxious, showboating, flashy messenger to get in the way of that. God requires not only that his message be Christ crucified, but that his messengers come in the manner of Christ crucified. And if you're like, Jake, this is great. This is good info on Paul. This is fine. What does this mean for me? Here's what I think. Here's what I think this means for us as a church today. And I think it means a lot of things, and we can spend a whole lifetime here, but I think it means at least this one thing. And the one thing is this. I think this is going to require us, as a church, to be a bit more vulnerable at work, at home, and at school. See, I think we think, and I could be wrong on this, and you can correct me afterwards, but I think we think that if we put our best foot forward, right, present ourselves as successful, as happy, as put-together people, that people, because of our success and how we present ourselves, will be one to Christ. That if these people are going to believe in Jesus, it will be because they saw how we were put together. In that scenario, though, let me ask you this question. Who gets the glory? Who gets the glory in that scenario? I think it's you. You who have figured things out. You who have got your poop together. You, a self-made man. You, a self-made woman. The problem is that what we think is helping the cause of the gospel actually serves to obscure the gospel. Get in its way. 
And whether we're conscious of it or not, we're winning people with ourselves, and so we're winning people to ourselves. And you see this all the time. When a charismatic, influential Christian leader has some huge moral failing, and everybody scatters in the wind. Why? Because they're one to him, or they're one to her. We're not winning people to ourselves. It's not the aim of this. Now, I'm not saying there shouldn't be anything exemplary about our lives. I'm not saying we should not be holy or distinct in our speech or in our living or any of those things. But let's not forget that holiness that you display, that distinctness that you display is not self-generated. It's God on display in you. It's just spirit moving in you. When we become confident in this truth, that Jesus did this in us, that it's Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, that it's Jesus rose to new life and sent his Holy Spirit. When we become confident in this truth, it frees us to go to people in weakness and in fear and in much trembling so that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men or humanity, but in the wisdom of God. There is this church and they have, and don't be freaked out by this, they have what is called their, their church mantra. Um, and I know mantra is a weird word, some of you. It's weird to me too, so let's just be weird together. But they have what's called their church mantra. Basically this phrase that they repeat often in their church. And I've talked about this before from the pulpit and definitely in pastoral conversations. And it goes like this. And I love it, and I want it to be our church mantra. I want us to steal it. Ready? First, I love this part. I'm a complete idiot. I'm a complete idiot. Second, my future is incredibly bright. Third, anyone can be on this. Who doesn't want to be a part of that community? Am I, is it just me? Because I am a complete idiot. Hang around long enough, you'll discover that for yourself. But in Christ, our future is incredibly bright. And it is true that anyone can get in on this. Anyone. Anyone. I wonder if, and this is just a thought, I wonder if the evangelism breakthrough that you're hoping for at work hasn't happened or hasn't come because you're too busy posturing yourself as successful, beautiful, handsome, pooped-together person, and in doing so, whether intentionally or not, you've obscured Jesus Christ and him crucified. If we want to win people to Christ, we need to win them with lies that make much not of us, but of Jesus. Second thing, we've seen the manner of our proclaiming, now the content of our proclaiming. Bible's open. Let's read verses 1 to 4 again. And I, Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Let's stop there. I don't know if you have these questions, but I have these questions about this text. And here are just a few. First, did, did Paul just kind of go into the synagogue, 
go to the pulpit or whatever they had back then, you know, unfold the scroll, say Christ crucified and then sit back down? Is that what Paul's talking about here? Or, right, when he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, we could rightly ask, Paul, what about the resurrection of Jesus? Right? What about the rest of Jesus' life? In fact, in this very letter, in chapter 15, you're going to make a big deal about the resurrection. What about the rest of his life? Or, and maybe this is more of a personal question, does this give me permission to preach really boring sermons? Which I kind of be down with, you know? You guys are all like, oh, how can we leave? We have questions about this text, right? Like I said, we've got questions. And to begin answering those, we have to again remember the distinction that Paul is drawing here, the context he's writing in. We've touched on this so far in our series, but it's really hard to overstate. To be a rhetorician of standing in Paul's day, especially in Corinth, was to be a, a celebrity. And not like a minor celebrity, like somebody on a, like a reality TV show, but like a, like a big celebrity, like a George Clooney or like a Marilyn Monroe or someone of, like, of stature, right? You're someone who's important. And so every year at the Isthmian Games, there'd be feats of speed, right? Feats of strength but also feats of speech at the games. These were real celebrities. People followed these people like we follow people on Instagram. They're, they're big deals. And there's good reasons to believe that in Paul's day, the rhetoric of past, which is like Cicero and his nice, formed, tight arguments, had sort of, you know, gone down a little bit. So now it was less about like the actual substance of the argument, and now it's more about style. So in Paul's day, the rhetoricians are these celebrities who are more concerned with style over substance, flash over what they're actually saying. And it was this game, we should remember, that Paul refused to play. It was this game that he refused to take part in. Paul refused to make the fancy words, the rhetoric, the plausible words of wisdom, the point. No, Paul says, Christ crucified was the point. And so Here's an aside. The role of rhetoric then, or using language well, is to serve the message. It's to serve the content, not obscure the content. And we can think of it like this. It has been said that the best filmmakers, if you're a film buff, the best filmmakers help you forget that you're watching a movie. They so envelop you in the story and they do their job so well that they, for, they make you forget watching a movie. You're just, you're just in the story. And there's been a shift in recent years in, in film, I don't know if you noticed this, where, where the director or, or the cameraman becomes a character in and of themselves. And so the camera is shaking or, or, or the camera is a, a person, right? It's distracting from the story. See, the 16th century English theologian, William Perkins, he said this, and I think it's true. It is also the point of art to conceal art. To not draw attention to the artist, but to draw attention to the art itself, the painting, the film, whatever it is. Beautiful speaking and beautiful writing then are not bad. They can't be. Because in this very letter, Paul employs that beautiful writing, that beautiful speaking. He uses rhetoric all the time. What's bad is when the language and the rhetoric begins to take away from the message of Christ crucified, which leads to another aside within an aside. When we leave on Sunday morning 
And you're like, man, that sermon was good. Maybe you don't say that, but maybe some of you do. And you're like, but I can't remember what he said. Like, that's a problem, right? That might be a sign that the rhetoric has gone over top of the message. It's not serving the message any longer. All our lives, including our speech, is in service, in submission to our crucified Lord Jesus. But is the cross all Paul talked about? And of course, you know the answer is is no. We need all of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his soon return. If our gospel is to be good news, we need all of Jesus. But imagine this with me. Imagine the Corinthians with their desire to participate and engage in a more socially acceptable religion, one more conducive to their obsessive ladder climbing. I imagine they would like to believe that the resurrection kind of cancels out the crucifixion. That the resurrection really is the thing we should talk about and the cross is kind of like a a background character. That the cross is some sort of weird anomaly to be hurried past or buried or ignored. But Paul's not having it. As one scholar put it, to know even the risen Jesus is to know him precisely as the crucified one. In other words, Corinth, make no mistake about it, Christ has risen. But the risen Christ who is returning has scars in his hands. Ask Thomas where the nails went in. He has a scar on his side where the spear pierced him. You can't take the cross out of the story. You can't remove it. You can't delete it. And if you do, you soon find that the message devoid of the cross wins a people who are allergic to the cross. See, Paul's desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified is not just good theology. It's good pastoring. And here's why. It is right and good for me to preach to you this morning that if you want to know God, you must come to know his son Jesus who died on the cross because, because of this. When suffering comes and hardship comes in your life, here's what the God of attractional church says to you. When suffering or hardship comes, the God of the attractional church says this, you are suffering because you don't have enough faith. Who's heard that before? Right? Or the God of the attractional church says, well, we should rise up and fight back against those who persecute us by whatever means we, we, we can, right? Because we need our, our piece of, of land now, or we need our piece of the pie now, or we need now. So we should fight back, whatever it takes. Or or the God of attractional church is perhaps more honest and says, what do you want me to do with this suffering? I have no place for this. I'm about good times over here and helicopter Easter egg drops. I don't got time for a cross. When we preach Christ crucified, the church hears a reminder that we have a God who suffered in our place, who knows rejection and hostility and violent opposition, and who in turn invites us to come to him and to bring our sorrow to him. And when we preach Christ crucified, those outside the church here, that you don't need to put on a face to come in these doors, 
You don't need to pretend or fake it till you make it. We're all idiots. Our God does not look away from the worst evil in this world. And that includes the evil in you and the evil done to you. No, he does not look away. In fact, he sends his son right into the middle of it. And he takes the full brunt of it on his shoulders. When we preach Christ crucified, we avoid the old bait and switch. There is life, eternal life, to be found in Jesus and in no one else. But the way that comes is when we join him in his death. Winning people to Christ will mean winning them with the message of Christ. And there is no other Christ than the Christ who is crucified. Third point. Last. The result of our proclaiming. So here's the question we should be asking. Why live like this? Sounds hard. This is a fun church. Why proclaim a message like this? And the answer is so simple, but so profound. When we preach the cross of Christ, people are one to the cross of Christ. When we preach the cross of Christ, people are one to Christ, to our crucified Lord. See, despite how foolish and strange this message sounds to status-obsessed people like you and me, when we preach Christ crucified and don't obscure or hide the gospel, gimmicks or tricks or whatever, it's like this. It's like we are raising a sail on a ship. And while God intentionally, purposely avoids sending his wind to sails raised for our wisdom and our glory and our namesake, he loves to send a mighty wind to be caught by the sail that's raised named Christ crucified. He delights to blow his wind into that sail. See, Paul says, look back at your Bibles with me. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of humanity, but in the power of God. In the, um, in the Welsh preaching tradition, they have this saying called catching the huel. And there's, like, there's no vowels in Welsh, if, if you know this, when they transliterate it. It's, so it's like H-W-Y-L. I guess Y is sometimes a vowel, but whatever. H-W-Y-L, catching the huel. And this word huel means canvas of the ship. And when they talked about a preacher or any proclaimer catching the huel, they were talking about him or her catching the wind of the Spirit. The idea is that when a preacher comes to the pulpit, not burdened down with gospel-obscuring gimmicks and anecdotes, but simply to proclaim Christ crucified, that in that moment he was lifting a sail for the Spirit to catch. That the Spirit might drive the boat forward. That the Spirit might enliven that which is still and motionless. That the Spirit might come and do the powerful and miraculous work of breathing new life into dead bones. It's catching the huel. But Christ City, catching the huel is not just for preachers 
And it's not just for those who stand behind pulpits. Every time we declare the good news, you are hoisting a sail in someone else's life. Not one littered with holes, not one that's too small, but a big sail that the Spirit loves to fill and empower as he drives that boat forward to salvation. That's what's happening when we share the gospel. See, when Paul says, look back at your text with me, in demonstration of the spirit and of power, he's not talking about performing magic tricks for the Corinthian church. I don't even think he's talking about using his spiritual gifts. He's talking about the power of salvation, the greatest miracle of all, which isn't turning water into wine, which isn't feeding 5,000. It's seeing people move from death to new life. That's the power Paul is talking about in our text this morning. A demonstration of the spirit and of power. See, where the wisdom of humanity has failed us, cannot save us, the power of God has accomplished our salvation. And do you know that this morning, Christ City? Do you believe it? This is why our faith rests in God's power. Because only God can save if we're going to see people one to Christ, praise the Lord, it will be because a, the Spirit of God performed a powerful miracle in them. And so let me end with this. I want to take this off this theological shelf for a moment and bring it to a very, very, very personal level. Each person in this room, and I know this to be a fact, each person in this room knows someone loves someone who does not know Jesus, has someone in their life who does not know Jesus. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a child, a brother, a sister, a mom or dad, a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a neighbor. And the temptation, I know this because this is my temptation, the temptation in each one of these relationships is to think like this, if I can just get this book in their hands, if I can just get this podcast in their ears, if I can just set up a meeting between them and my pastor, right, then maybe they'll be saved, maybe the needle will move in their life, as if there is something out there other than the gospel of Jesus, that a book has, or a podcast has, or, or I have, which will act as this silver bullet to save people, to bring them to faith? Christ City, I have to ask this morning, do you believe that God uses the proclamation of this message to save people? Or do you actually believe it takes just a little something more? Tim Keller's clever turns of phrase. Or a podcast with a bunch of PhDs. Do you actually believe it takes something more? Listen, books are good. My office is full of books. Podcasts are fine. I'm kind of eh on podcasts. And I do a podcast, so there you go. But all their power to change people's lives, if they have any at all, will be because they are proclaiming the simple message of Christ crucified. There's no other secret. There's no special sauce. 
So the next time that friend comes over, that family member, that neighbor, or your spouse, and they're hurting, maybe because of their sin, or maybe because of sin done against them, you have a choice to make. You can give them the wisdom of humanity. You can talk about setting boundaries and achieving work-life balance and going on a Caribbean vacation and, and eating well. And all those things might help. They might. For a bit. And, and you'll be congratulated. That's good advice. You're so wise. Wow. Thank you. But all you will be doing, if that's where you stop, is putting a Band-Aid on cancer. If this friend, this spouse, this coworker does not know Jesus, there is only one thing that will cure what ails them, and it's Jesus Christ crucified. Maybe this morning you are that family member. You are that neighbor. You are that coworker. And you've tried it all. You've heard a lot of fancy talks from fancy people. Here's a disclaimer. I am not special. Did you hear? I'm an idiot. I'm not rich. I'm terrified of what other people might think of me. Uh, my style is a cross between athleisure and suburban pastor. Right? When I go home today, it will be sweatpants until next Sunday. And if you're looking for an influencer type guru, they're not here. I can point you to their Instagrams. But by the grace of God, I and others here, despite our lowliness, we've been given a message. A message that if you choose to believe it, it will change your life. It is powerful. And that message is this. Things are messed up. I'm messed up. I love the wrong things and do wrong things to the people I love. The world is messed up. The whole created world, the systems we've built, broken. All of them. But God was not content to leave us in our messed upness. So because he loved us, he sent his son and Jesus showed us how to live, how to be a true human being. And then he died that we might be able to do it, to live it. If only we would turn from our sin, from our love of all that is wrong, and love him instead. See, King Jesus rose from the dead, and he is coming back again. And all that messed upness, he is going to fix. Do you believe that, Christ City? All that messed upness, he is going to fix. Every tear wiped away. Every injustice made right. Every poison stream made clear. Every warmongering nation subdued. King Jesus, with scars on his hands and on his side, is coming back to make all things new. That message, if you trust it this morning, you'll soon discover has power to change you, has power to change me. It's the power to change us. 
Believe it this morning. Receive it this morning. If you're not a follower of Jesus, come talk to me. I love to pray with you. Believe it this morning. When we proclaim God's message, which is Christ crucified, in God's way, not hiding it, not obscuring it behind the attractional temptation, we hoist a sail that God loves to fill in power by his spirit. Let's pray. So, Father, we come this morning. We come to hear. We come to live in. We come to be encouraged by nothing other than the simple message that your son Jesus came in our place, died in our place, rose for our new life, and is coming back again. That's the story we want to live in, Father. That's the story we want to change our lives. We want to bring every heartache, every question, every trouble, everything into that story. And so I pray by your Holy Spirit you'd help us to do that. That if there is a brother or sister here this morning who does not know you, that they today would turn from their sin and believe in you. And would they know this morning the power that message brings for salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.